0: Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. And guess what today is? Thursday. Yes, it is Thursday because that's when we record. Yeah. We drop them on Tuesday. That's true. Tuesday. Today's Tuesday. No. Well. Are we trying to create a an illusion? An illusion? No. Media because, illusion? Because, you know, Josh does the editing. and He's been our producer for so many years. Uh, and he cuts and edits all the stuff we put out on Facebook. That's true. And so... Um, But today is... Special day. It's our 300th episode. Woo! Yeah. 300 is crazy, bro. That's a lot
1: in less than, not quite four years. Yeah. Yeah, so we've, there are very few weeks we've missed. Yeah. We've we've hit almost every week.
0: And we've had to play, uh, do some replays and and stuff like that, but that's okay. And then we've done episodes where it's just you doing a guided meditation. Right, yep. Uh, We've done some solo episodes uh, with just me, solo episodes with you. Yeah. Uh, And some of them have gone viral, like the letter from my daughter. Definitely. Over 7 million views right now. Really? And I remember when we started this, and you'll hear this a lot in the recovery world, and people will say, if my story can just help one person, Mm -hmm. then it's worth it to tell it. Because a lot of times when addicts are telling their story, it's reliving the horribleness that you went through, the bad stuff that you have done. And so sometimes it's very taxing. We've had people who've been on the podcast who, afterwards, have, have felt vulnerable uh, and just didn't and, and didn't have a good time. I, I think a few, not too many, but a few. But some of them, I, I, I think, sometimes it's
1: they they're so authentic that later they worry, like, how you know, was it too much? You did know, they to share, share too story? much? Yeah. Did they get
0: you know? And 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 what are people going to look? at me different, if they listen to this podcast and they're scared. Some people
1: have shared things on this show for the very first time that they have, you know, other people have shared their story a lot but some people, this is the first format where they've really shared their story and they do worry about friends and family knowing some of the details but I mean, I think that is cathartic because we, we were very clear with our guests beforehand. They don't have to share anything that they're not comfortable with. We always with. tell them this and is we, your- And they can call, since we do a delay, Yeah, they can call back and ask for things to be edited. And out.
0: very, very rarely have we had to do that.
1: Oh, a couple of times, I think. Is but all, when I right?
0: talk to people, I go, this is your story. Mm-hmm. Share what you want. Share what you're comfortable with. I remember when I was early on in addiction... Uh, I would tell people, this is honest as I can be right now, because some of the memories and some of the stuff that I'm going through, I still haven't completely processed. Sure. So I I don't know how I feel about it. And I don't know, you know, I haven't gotten to the root of it yet. So there's certain times in your recovery that people will go, this is as honest as I can be right now. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm trying to hide stuff from you. I just haven't fully processed this information and went down this rabbit hole and tried to figure out why I do what I did. Yeah. Uh, when we started this podcast a little less than four years ago, the goal was just to help people. Yeah. It was a way for me to share my story um, and
1: and get it out there. Well, and you've said a lot of times that uh, this is one of the things you do
0: to stay sober. So my daughter's 18. She just graduated. She's going to the University of Utah. When she was four years old, I remember asking her, I go, Dad, I go, honey, what do you want for your birthday? Mm-hmm. And she goes, I want you to quit smoking, dad. Oh, really? And I was like. She was how old? Four. Oh. I'm pretty sure it wasn't her idea. <laughs>
1: I was going to say. I'm Mom sh- might have had something to do with that. I'm pretty
0: sure know. it was my ex-wife. Yeah. But well, I remember looking in her eyes and going, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And then I remember the next day going on TV and telling everybody, I'm quitting smoking for my daughter's fourth birthday. If you see me smoking out in public, come up and smack me. Ooh, that'd be fun. And the reason I did that was a safety net and another way to be held it's accountable. A, it's an
1: accountability exercise. Yeah.
0: So when we started this podcast, it was twofold. It was one to help people mm-hmm. and the other to keep me accountable and to put my story out there and let everybody go along the ride with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, we haven't had any bumps. Uh, I think it's wood. Wood. Maybe for my wood ish would like yeah, uh, but it was a way to keep me accountable and to help people. Well So did you ever smoke again? After Never that? smoked again. Really? Never smoked again. Wow, that's hard to do. I have Nick smoked is... cigars, uh, but that's that wasn't it. Was cigarettes? It was and, cigarettes. And I remember when I was going into rehab, mm-hmm. I was like, I do not want to leave rehab with more habits than I went in, mm. because you always hear people who get into rehab love they, coffee. That's
1: where they start smoking a lot of times
0: and smokes. Yeah. And so one of the famous lines I tell people is, like, I'm probably the only guy that's ever gone to rehab who doesn't drink coffee. Yeah, You're not a coffee drinker. I've never been a coffee drinker. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of my story. And uh, this is a big day for us, 300 episodes. Uh, Josh, is there a lot of podcasts here at KSL that have 300 episodes? Uh, Maybe the no, so I mean that's a testament to what we're doing, and uh, what we're not competitive do. at all with the
1: other podcasts. A little competitive, a little bit maybe.
0: But yeah. this a testament to uh, the people, who are guests who come on the show and yeah. share their stories, yeah. And those of us who those who listen every week.
1: That and to be honest, I, I mean I appreciate KSL, uh, you know, letting us do the show
0: every week. And you know what? They really haven't given us many rules. Mm-mm, no. uh, I think we're the podcast that has said the word I mean, masturbation the most. Probably. I know know it is. (laughs) I know it is. I know it is. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, are you sure they know we're still here? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: they do. do. Uh, So thank you for letting us. We have a
1: nice new studio to do the show, the 300th episode. Yeah. We are back also fitting. We're back in the remodeled studio that w- that's been you know six
0: months in the making and so it's a it's a fun day but, but you bring up ksl and we should thank ksl yeah, because definitely. they took a shot on a guy who'd been out of rehab for three that's months. that's one of
1: my favorite stories you tell is how
0: you got fired and pitched this podcast on the same day and they went for it and they did <laughs> and they, they said the only the only thing is i gotta get a doctor i go i got one yeah <laughs> and then i called you and you said yes and here we are getting ready to do our 300th episode. So thank you for allowing us to do what we do. And thank you, KSL. Thank you, Josh. And thank you to the listeners. And thank you to the guests uh, from the bottom of my heart. Guests uh, are the stars of this. You'll show. You'll never know what this does for me. People always tell me, it's so good that you do the podcast. And I always feel jealous because I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. you don't know what it's doing for me.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a great opportunity for you to stay talking about sobriety every week and keeps I, me
0: rooted keeps yeah. me grounded and keeps me in the recovery community and i al- always tell people and i was just telling somebody last night i was djing this event and uh, a year two years ago three years ago uh you would listen to somebody talk about their recovery and they would say i would not wish addiction on my worst enemy but i wouldn't change the fact that i got it for anything in the world and I would sit in those rooms and I'd go, you are out of your mind. <laughs> right. This is the worst yeah. thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. And I would wish it on my worst enemy. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you now, recovery has given me everything that I've ever wanted in life. It's given me my family back. It's given me my job. It's given me my purpose. It's given me a way to live a better, healthier life fulfilling life
1: how how do you think your mental health has changed since getting sober
0: like, my mental health yeah. uh, I, to be honest with you it, it, it's still a little wonky you, <laughs> you know what i mean but it's better than it's ever been i yeah. see things clearer than it's ever been i appreciate things more than i ever have i still battle with saying no i still battle with people pleasing i still battle with some of the issues that got me into my addiction but, but I,
1: I i think you're uh you're at it, I think it, people who don't know you may not see this cuz you've always been very upbeat and happy on air but I mean I think you're happier than
0: you Oh I'm 100% show. happier. I'm um authentically happy. Yeah. If that's if if if, if. Yeah. No, for sure. If that's that makes a,
1: sense. That's a thing.
0: A lot of times in my addiction, it was a forced happy. It was a front. Mm-hmm. It was something I was putting on because I thought people wanted that. I thought people deserved that. And I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so now if I'm happy, I'll let you know. But there'll be times that I'll be just like, hey, I'm just cool. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I, I'm you not going put- to to. Force it. I'm not going to put a song and dance on, and, yeah. and, and sometimes days aren't good, and sometimes I go through problems, and the only difference is now that I've got is a lot more tools in my tool belt, and I can reach those. Uh, I've been having panic attacks lately. Yeah? And, well, I
1: guess I do that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and I've been- uh, using usually you been working on it? I've been working on it. I've been doing my square breathing, good. and it, it it it's crazy because and this is not about me. Uh, but this first part it kind of is, is that I used to get up in the middle of the night with panic attacks mm-hmm. and I couldn't get out of my body quick enough. I would run around the house. I would look in the mirror. I would go upstairs. I would go downstairs. I was just freaking out. And I, oh, panic is the worst. And I didn't know how to get out of it. Yeah. And the only thing that I knew to do was to pound a 24 ounce beer or take a shot mm-hmm. and let that sit down for a minute and let that kind you know,
1: of try to calm
0: you a little, cal- cal- yeah. and it would. And it yeah. would, but then eventually one twenty-four ounce turned into two twenty-four ounces or two shots or three or three shots. You know what I mean? And that's pretty rough in the middle of the night. It's not good. No. You know what I mean? When you're reaching for a bottle of tequila yeah. at two 30 in the morning, just to calm down.
1: Well, that's why we talk so much on the show. And, and I have something to talk about in a minute about mental health, that mental health, you know, addiction, substance abuse, mental health. They all go hand in hand. They affect each other. Um, people who are addicted to things just you know, like alcohol or whatever probably have some un- undertreated uh, mental health issues.
0: You know, I can tell you this, and I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but those years that I was on TV and radio and everywhere in your face, I suffered from a very low self-esteem. You would have never have guessed yeah, it. Yeah, it's hard for
1: people to understand that, but, but I know that's true. You know true. what I mean? Yeah. I didn't think I was— And that's not that uncommon in your business.
0: I, wasn't, I never thought I was deserving of what I had. Mm-hmm. I always thought that it was being able to take from me at a drop of a hat. And, and You always and,
1: have somebody wanting your job. What and you so, do. Yeah.
0: you know, I, so that would force me to always be on and always give the best, even when I didn't feel like it. And sometimes I had to use help of substance to get me where I needed to be or I thought needed to be. Right. And it wasn't until I got this job back on TV the second time where I asked myself, do we need this?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the answer was no, I don't need this. I don't need to be on TV. I don't need to be on radio. I can live a good life without doing that. And I didn't think that was possible. Now, the reason I'm on now is because I want to and I can and I have a good time doing it. But there's a difference. You know,
1: well, people may or may not know. I mean, you didn't accept the job right away. No, it took you a while to think it through and see if it felt right to you instead of. What most people might think is like, oh, he jumped right back on TV. But you almost said no.
0: I Cinderella did. Yeah. I, you know, I even put that shoe to see if it fit yeah. and see if I still liked it and see if I could walk in it. And it, it was cool. And I was having a good time. And, and and people will tell me now when they go out, they go, you really enjoy this. And I go, 100%. I I, I never wake up and think, oh, man, this sucks. I mean, it sucks to get up that early, but I wake up and I go, man, this morning I was eating bugs at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Good times, right? Yeah. yeah. It was in a lemon cake and they were black ants, but I was like, I can't believe I get paid to do this. This is cool. Who else gets this kind of, you know, this is no, insane. No, I was asleep at that
1: time. I yeah. Think. yeah.
0: And I was doing it gladly. Yeah. That's fun. It's, it's your jam. So, You're born to do it. So it's, it's fun. And so um, recovery has given me everything that I have that's amazing in my life. And if I don't keep sober, I don't get to keep those things. True. So I'm thankful for recovery. I know recovery is possible. It's not easy, but it's 100% worth it. 100%. So you've got some mental health stuff here. Just real quick, kind
1: of that's a nice dovetail into what I want to talk about. There's uh, some early research coming out from the Research Society on alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Um, But first I want to ask you, how would you define – we haven't introduced our guest today, but I bet he'll have a good definition – For the word empathy, I want to
0: hear what you guys think. What would you say empathy is? Empathy is, to me, is feeling what somebody else is feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to me. If I have empathy, I might not understand complete what you're going through, but I feel bad that you feel bad. And I want to help in any way I can.
1: That's a great definition. How about our therapist
0: in the room? This what? is Jameson James. named after a liquor. Were yeah. you named after a liquor? I wasn't, no. <laughs> as far as he knows. But there is a liquor called Jameson. There is, yeah. Uh, what Iris is empathy the, to you?
2: I mean, I think you said it well. But I think it's, you know, to me, just being able to put yourself in in someone else's shoes and, and feeling, maybe feeling some small taste of the emotion or the experience that they would have.
1: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, you guys did it. So empathy... <clears throat> uh, that, that's empathy, being able to understand someone else's emotions and sort of share that with them, right? And, and those are great definitions. So this new research is showing that adolescents, teenagers who are in treatment for alcoholism for drinking uh, who go through a group and individual therapy that's designed to increase empathy de- just that addition of empathy uh, decreases their likelihood to drink over time Really? After they leave treatment. Isn't that cool? And the theory is, or the the, the early research suggests that, um, suggests a declining use of uh, alcohol due to a greater sense of connection with others. Empathy creates that connection. And so I wanted to bring this up um, because that we talk about connection on the show every week. It's the opposite of addiction. It's the opposite of addiction. And this is a study that kind of proves that, that teenagers who are learning to be empathetic Empathy naturally creates a, a a positive connection with other people. You're sharing their emotion. You get how they're doing, and that connection seems to be the catalyst to wanting to use less
0: after treatment. You know, empathy for addicts from loved ones who aren't addicts is a tough one to wrap your head around. I remember there were so many times, and I'm not—I don't want to throw my ex-wife under the bus—but we'd have these fights where she goes, "Just stop." Why can't you just stop? Yeah, and I would say. I'm trying and I would make her promises and then I would break those promises and she just didn't get it. She thought that I was just weak and and, and to her because she was never addicted to something like that. She thought it was just as easy as stopping.
1: And don't you think though that um, she's probably a common representation of people who grew up in the seventies, eighties, nineties. We didn't have any training. We didn't understand. There was no teaching moments about what addiction is. And so I think most of us, probably when we were younger, would have thought, well, yeah, I just stop. Yeah. Right?
0: And it sounds so simple. Yeah. And to somebody who doesn't have an addiction, they they look at you and go, why can't you just stop? Yeah. What are you doing? Can't you see that this is ruining your life? This is ruining our marriage. This is so horrible. Why do you keep doing it? Just stop. And I, knowing you... You
1: probably tried
0: really hard just to stop. I tried all the time yeah. just to stop. Now, to be fair, my uh, ex-wife now, who I'm best friends with, she's a wonderful woman, mm-hmm. a great she mother. She is great. And uh, all those things, she does have more empathy towards it because she went through the school of hard knocks. She learned.
1: But if we don't learn, then we maintain these you know, false beliefs about things like addiction over time and mental health and the stigma with both. And
0: One you know. of the phrases I learned early on in recovery was... Love the addict, hate the disease. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that gets tough to do mm-hmm. because the addict will do some terrible things. Mm-hmm. And it's all in an effort to feed their addiction. They will cross lines that they said they've never crossed. They will do things that you couldn't believe they would do all in an effort to feed that addiction. Right. And this is someone that you love, someone you grew up with, someone that you married. Uh, your child, your, maybe. Your or, child. Yeah. And, and and you, you it, it gets blurry. Yeah. Because you go, how can they do that? Right. That's, I don't know them, but it's it's the disease.
1: Yeah. It takes over your brain, your judgment, your behaviors.
0: Absolutely. In uh, the AA rooms, they say one is too many, and a thousand never enough. <laughs> and they're referring to drinks. Right. Because once an addict takes that first drink, uh, your brain's hijacked. Yeah. And now we're off to the races because we want more of that. So we're going to do some things that we don't normally would do.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about how you wire—you can wire your brain for addiction, especially the younger you start using. Yeah, and that brain starts to drive you around. To I, I like that word hijack; it hijacks your thinking and your behavior in order to keep that substance flowing.
0: Well, luckily, even in the four years that we've done this, uh, the recovery community has come a long way. Uh, We have a lot more people sharing their stories. We're normalized. There are a lot
1: more events. Yeah. Have you noticed that? A ton more events. Just since since we started this show, there are more events that are really cool to educate or uh, about addiction, to celebrate, to highlight the
0: treatment options. Um, There are a lot of things going on throughout the year. I don't like this term, but I'm going to say it anyways. It seems to me we're normalizing addiction, and and that's not good. We don't we 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 want to eradicate addiction. We want to prevent addiction if we can. Well, maybe we're educating people, right? Educating, and and so people are more willing to have. A conversation mm-hmm. they're more willing to share their trials that are their families are going through so we're not feeling like we're the only one in the neighborhood that's broken we're the only family that's going through this yeah and and, and we, if we if we educate ourselves and we form a community and we make those connections hopefully we can help somebody go through addiction and come out on the other side and live a f- fulfilling life absolutely our guest today is jameson heaton did i get that right you did and uh, Jameson's brother, Brian, was on the show. We were riding the elevator up. He's two of four brothers, uh, and he's a, a brother in recovery. And he's going to tell his story coming up next. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist and the brains of the bunch. Is that right? Well, that's what I'm going You're with. You're pretty smart guy. Uh, I'm street smart. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, you are straight. So I'll agree. talk you out of your money. Yeah, you will. Yeah, but I won't. <laughs> I won't answer final jeopardy. <laughs> Our guest today is Jameson Heaton, younger brother, younger, right? Yes. Bigger, though. Bigger to Brian Heaton, who yeah. uh, was a guest on about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a chance to golf with him in uh, the Lemma Harrington Golf Classic
2: for recovery. And uh, your brother can hit the ball. He can hit it. Yeah. Can you hit it, too? I can hit it. Uh, maybe not as well as him. But, and yeah. you
0: said there's another brother that's even better.
2: Yeah, we, there's four of us brothers. We have one little sister, but all four of us golf. So,
0: all right, we've made a
2: foursome our whole life.
0: So we feel like we know you a little bit because remember the story of Bryden. And if you want to hear Bryden's story, you go back and, and pull that up, and it's a wonderful listen. Uh, but where does the story of Jameson Heaton begin?
2: Yeah, well, um, so my story began. I, you know, I was born in Sandy and grew up in Farmington, Utah, mm-hmm. and um, pretty typical, pretty typical kind of childhood for for one, in Utah. Religious? Religious. Grew up religious. Um, and, yeah, family, like kind of just normal family stuff. East side of Farmington on the benches, um, our family, you know, upper, middle class, maybe middle class. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, things were quite quite normal, I guess, for for the early part of my life. What does normal mean to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, my parents were were together until I was a teenager. Um, we were in good schools. We, uh, I guess we interacted together as a family. We, I, I guess that's what I would, I would, uh, say normal. Farmington,
1: <clears throat> uh, reminds me of sort of like the quintessential American childhood, right? Sure. Like a lot of families, uh, a lot of sports, a lot of, you know, barbecues, 4th of July, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I think, I think that's kind of typical for people. As a child, you you probably didn't want for much.
2: No, exactly. No. And we played sports, we golfed, we, you know, we all, you know, we, we played baseball. I had, I played a ton of baseball as a, as a kid on traveling teams. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I would consider that like, there was nothing, there was nothing in my past that was, um, what we would call like big trauma or, um, you know, an event that happened that kind of set me on a course, you know, for me, it was rather like a bunch of Smaller events that kind of that added up, or you know. if you had to
0: pinpoint an event, because I can tell you, I, I'm like you, I didn't have a big trauma yeah. that kind of forced me down the road. Um, you know, mine was more curiosity Mm -hmm. you know what i mean uh it's the 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 product of what i watched and what i was that's a good
1: description of your personality in general yeah
0: curiosity curiosity you know i was like i wonder what this is like and then it made me feel good and then i kept going Uh, yeah so if you had a pinpoint what would you think it would be yeah so that's not fair
2: sure no Uh, i i think it's you know as you as, as you as i put time between like now and when i was using my insight increases into all of my childhood and to what led to my addiction. So I think it's a lot of things. One of them is I have a good friend in recovery who says born without breaks. It's like I'm a believer in that. It's like I I, I, I don't have breaks either. I, I was never I was never I never considered like saying no. It was never like a part of my plan to just be like, I'm you know, I'm not gonna drink or I'm not gonna I'm,
0: I'm it was good. like if
2: my friends were doing it, I I was gonna do it. There was a little bit of like, um you know, I'm doing something bad or But I was like zero to 100 all the time, starting with like at 12 with like cigars in the backyard and, you know, like super young. So there's that. But I think like if we're talking about my – the core issue that led me down that path, it was, you know, in that like formative part of life, sixth, seventh grade, fifth, sixth, seventh, I just started to feel that sense of not belonging. And, you know, I have – you know, my, my story is like all wrapped up in anxiety and different anxieties and mainly social anxiety. And so when I started like going through puberty, I started feeling that, um, though I didn't know at the time. Again, I had no insight. And so to me, it was just like I just started withdrawing a little bit and acting out in, in school, maybe not completing schoolwork and feeling like I was less than my friends for some reason, like feeling like they had something that I didn't or that they were judging me Or, you know, I guess that's the best way that I can kind of, and that is the main, main thing I would say that kind of led to. Sometimes we call Mm -hmm. that
1: phenomenon, uh, like the being on stage phenomenon, you sort of feel like everyone's looking at you Everyone's Mm -hmm. sort of judging you in reality, nobody's paying attention to you, but that anxiety creates that, um, intense kind of, uh, microscope feeling that everyone's looking at me, judging me. And, uh, I think
0: that's. Miserable
1: when you're that yeah. age, but right? see in
0: my head I felt like that too. But my thought process was: if everybody's going to look at me, I'm going to give you something to look at. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. I was does. like, I if, if you guys are going to point me out and you're going and I'm going to feel like I'm on the spotlight, I'm going to give you something to so look at.
1: Yeah, because the, the class clown type, yeah, person that was me. People usually think of them as they're having a lot of fun. They're often compensating for
2: those feelings
1: of social
0: mm-hmm. anxiety, like yeah. you did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you tried a substance and what led you to that?
2: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you just said it really well. So it's like, I, I always felt like if I could act out or if I could, you know, that was a way to kind of like validate my existence. It put me into a group or it put me, it like, it made other people understand me. Or, I, you know, again, this is all. I gave no idea. gave time. you a purpose. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think it was like cigarettes and cigars around 12 And then I first started drinking when I was, um, it was seventh or eighth grade, somewhere somewhere around there. So I don't know what is that, thirteen, fourteen, something Mm -hmm. like that. And you know, my experience with that is like, again, I I'm born without breaks, but I I also it just like I have that experience that you hear a lot of, just like I felt like everything that I felt deficient in was immediately solved by alcohol. We've had people
0: sit down right where you are. and say they felt whole exactly you know complete
2: whole. if you will that, that
0: for the first time in my life i feel like i think you guys feel you know what i mean that when yeah. you're looking on the inside of the out it's like hey look this is must that's how they must feel
2: all the time yep. this is amazing and that's i mean to me it's like that that's okay if you know that because then it's like well that might be dangerous but if you don't know that So I didn't know that. I had no insight into that. So what I thought was like when I was sober, there was something wrong with me that nobody else experienced, that nobody else really understood me and Mm -hmm. they couldn't, like there was nobody out there that was having the experience in life that I was. And so when you come at it that way, so you think I'm deficient when I'm sober and when I use, then I'm like everybody else, that's a dangerous, dangerous recipe, so then life became really quickly – I mean, 13, 14, 15, it became about partying as much as much as I could with anything that I could. So from seventh and eighth grade,
0: you started alcohol. How quick did it escalate to other drugs?
2: Um, You know, so I, I guess it would be ninth grade. It escalated a little bit into opiates and pills and um, marijuana the whole time. I don't want to minimize marijuana. So, you know, I, I would – How
1: hard was it for a 13-year-old in Farmington to – Get their hands on things like, like alcohol and weed. Back in is this the '90s? Maybe
2: it's funny because yeah, um, yeah, mid '90s. So, or, or I guess late '90s. But um, alcohol, in my experience, was always the hardest to get. And so it was like marijuana and maybe pills wasn't as easy. But marijuana. Do you think that's because alcohol is controlled by the you by the government? Maybe.
1: That's the theory. The theory is that, you know, because it's legal, it's controlled. Yeah. And I would say most of the teenagers I work with say that still today, that it's a lot harder to get alcohol. You can go down to the Sugar House Park and get weed any day you want.
0: Do you want me to let you in on a little secret? Weed is everywhere. So yeah, yeah, weed's everywhere. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of kids go into the alternative drugs mm-hmm. versus alcohol because they're easily hideable. And I mean uh, that in a yeah. sense that if yeah. you get drunk, you mm-hmm. smell. Yeah. You your your body acts a little bit different, mm-hmm. and then you know. I mean, you've seen it it's in probably all the movies. Easier to
1: cover it up. Yeah, You know, know what I mean? Smoking. They'd be like,
0: "Hey, breathe on me." You know? Mm-hmm. They, oh, you're drunk. You know? What I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. But and be, you, you act you act out in a different way yeah. when you're drunk. Yeah. But yeah.
0: you take pills, you take cough syrup, and all these other things. They mm-hmm. test you. They do whatever they want. they be like, ah, "There's no alcohol in the system." Right. And yeah. you just go, "I told you." You yeah. know? What I mean, and I think that's it's much
2: easier to hide.
1: Yeah. yeah. How about pills at that age? So that's kind of. I mean, I know
2: lots of kids that age do experiment with that, but what did you, how did you get into pills? I was just, you know, introduced to him at one point by a buddy and, um, and again, just had that experience of like, oh my gosh, you know, and just remember vividly thinking um, and, and you guys have my best friend Drew on and, and Drew, we love Drew man, he was the best. I, I remember him and I having the conversation in his car of like, I just want to feel like this forever. Mm. And so that's that's how I felt with like opiates specifically. But I was at that age, you know, and at this time there was stuff going on with my family. So parents are splitting and I feel like I'm a, a little bit lost and directionless. And so, I mean, I would have put anything in my body, anything. Do, do you
0: think, and and I could be completely off base with this. Do you think you blamed yourself at all for your parents splitting? Do you think that that, that affected, you know, your drug use? Do you think your drug use affected the splitting? I don't know.
2: Um, I don't know. They would have to answer that one. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't at the time feel like I was to blame. I was pretty apathetic. Like I was pretty in a rebellious mode, like 14 and 15 and 16 Mm -hmm. in that period of my life was, was pretty checked out of any of that. So when you're
0: going through this, was your brother Brian going through the similar stuff? mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, but he and I at that time weren't weren't super close. Like I think that the family that we we all kind of grow apart a little bit at that point. And I'm for sure on my own, so I'm full blown social anxiety hood over my head. Well, and then sometimes, and I, and I played baseball. It's the only reason I, I got to give a lot of credit to baseball because it's the only reason I graduated high school and maybe lived. Who knows? But because I had to get it together for baseball, and but. You know, I, I was kind of like I was a class clown sometimes and in some groups, but a lot of times I just went into a, a shell from my family, from from friends, from everybody. You know, I sucked myself kind of into a relationship and and had no idea, no insight, no conversations or no resources to help me understand what was going on. I just I know now, you know, and and um but back then, no idea. I'm just lost, lost, lost and detached and really feeling like um there's no way out of who I am, which is like something that I really, really disliked.
0: During your high school years and your hard party, and maybe this wasn't even your hardest party and did your parents ever talk to you? Did school ever talk to you? Did you ever get in trouble with the law? Did, was there anybody going, hey, uh, Jameson, you might want to pump the brakes on this. We know you were born without brakes, but you maybe want to get some.
2: Or do you think um, you hit it pretty well? Man, I have to think back a little bit. I know I know that we as a whole, like the, the baseball team, we got into some – they were threatening us a little bit with drug tests. And um, I think they had caught wind of some stuff going on. Uh, for the most part, I could put on a good face at school and do enough to kind of pass my classes, and there wasn't any, you know. And I just could kind of hide in the shadows. And um, my parents were going through their own stuff, mm-hmm. and so there was very little. My mom tried; she did her very best, but there was very little direction from them, or like, hey, do you want to? Well, that's not true. I mean, she she took me to a therapist, so I lied to. And um, <laughs> he's like, wait <laughs> a wait a second. People lie to therapists, huh? Well, he's like, I think you're anxious, and like, I think you're wrong. And, uh, <laughs> you don't know me. <laughs> exactly. I was just stubborn, and so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of where I was at at that time, just kind of lost and dark, like pretty dark feeling and pretty dark, and um, yeah. So thanks
0: to baseball, uh, much credit is due, uh, you end up graduating. Mm-hmm. Where does Jameson go from there?
2: Uh, Full-blown pills at that point. So at that time, um, a lot of my friends around me had found a uh, kind of this ring of OxyContin. Doctor shopping. Yes. And so there were just pills everywhere. And so – I want to stop you because we've had a lot of people in here and a lot of different groups.
0: And it seemed like that was very uh, prevalent back in the late 90s, early 2000s -hmm. where pills were just everywhere. But when we talk about pills everywhere – Mm-hmm. How hard would it be to get, say, a hundred pills?
2: Um, there there are certain periods. I mean, it's on, kind of on and off a little bit. Mm-hmm. But in the heyday of me doing OxyContin, I would have had multiple friends with a hundred OxyContin pills.
0: And back then, were they expensive? Hmm.
2: Yeah. So I mean, as much as a dollar a milligram. So there's eighty milligram OxyContin pills that were people would pay eighty eighty dollars for. And so you're walking around with – I don't do the math on that, but that's – costs $80. $800. So, I mean prescriptions of oh. hundreds a month. Oh, no, 8000 Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of money. That is yeah. a lot of money. And and so a lot, a lot of money. And now are you selling to feed your habit or are you just using or – Well, the type of user that I was. So I had friends that were selling to feed their habits and I had friends that were maybe not addicts that were just selling them. I would pretend that I was going to sell them and like, Hey, from me some, some of these pills. And then I'd just take them all, you know, and then owe a debt. So that was kind of more the, I had good intentions. I think it's like, yeah, I'm going to go really, you know, be entrepreneurial and make this work. And <laughs> his good intentions were to be a drug dealer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you're full, you're full blown
0: into pills after a high school graduation. Yeah. Um, and does that, uh, how does that look like for you?
2: So it's like I, I remember I was at work one day and I was sick and like, oh, man, I just I'm to go. And then it dawned on me like this is um, this is opiate withdrawal. You're dope sick. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I was 19 and I knew from that moment for the rest, you know, till today um, I'm 39 now. But it's like I'm an addict, like I'm addicted to these things. And I just knew it in my soul.
0: When you have that self-realization that you're an addict at the age 19. Mm hmm. What is the thought process is like, well, I guess this is what we're doing for the rest of our lives. Or do you think maybe I should go check about those breaks people keep talking about?
2: Yeah, it it felt like, you know, that time it felt like falling into a hole. You know, it felt like, you know, that sinking feeling when something bad happens. It's just like it just like falling into a hole. Like there was no part of me that wanted to be a drug addict or, or to use pills every day or to be dependent on them. And from that point forward, I can, you know, honestly say that I just tried to quit, if not every day, every week. It just became a constant battle between me and quitting.
0: Now, think think about this, Dr. Matt. This goes from something fun that makes him whole to something he now needs to do. And when you move that switch from fun to need, Mm -hmm. uh, because I know because I did it with alcohol, Mm -hmm. it... It's no longer fun anymore. Mm-hmm. I remember one time my mom called me when I was active in addiction. She was like, this is some BS, son. And I go, what are you talking about? She goes, you're out there partying, having a good time, and we're all paying the price. And I remember the first time going, does it look like I'm having fun? Because mm-hmm. I can tell you yeah. I'm not. You know, I'm doing this just to get a base level zero just so I can go through the day. So I don't know what you're looking at, but I'm not having fun, mom. And
1: I think the insidious part of that is after the first time you use – that switch starts to move, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. every time you use after that, it gets less and less fun. And it's it's incremental. You don't really notice at first. And then eventually people usually have, like you were saying, a, a little bit of insight where they're like, oh my gosh, I have a problem with this. Mm-hmm. I'm an addict at 19. But then by yeah. then the switch has flipped.
2: It's flipped. And it's, and, and it's for, for most addicts, I, I can say, and I work with a lot of addicts now. And it's like, I can say it is a desperate, desperate, Situation. It is not a situation they want to be in, even if it looks like it, or it looks like they're having fun, or they're putting on a good face, or they're being defiant or defensive, or whatever. For most addicts, it is an extremely desperate situation I, that is a battle between life and death, literally.
1: Yeah, and I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's part of that psychoeducation that I hope is happening more and more around the country, especially here in our state of Utah. Where people are realizing this isn't fun for them, like they think, well, that that feeds that. Why don't they just stop? Part like if it if you, as a non-user, look at somebody from the outside and you think, well, they're just using and having fun, they're just partying all the time, then you you of course would think they could just stop yeah. because that's what you can do with parties is you mm-hmm. can just stop. But they're not they're not having fun. They're mm-hmm. miserable. They're addicted. They're chained down to this, and it absolutely is a battle between life and death, which. If we can educate friends and family, you, we can know how to better help people instead of just assume they can stop. So yeah.
0: you're 19. You admitted to yourself you're an addict. You said if you didn't try to quit, at least every other day. It was every other week. And how yeah. long did you keep that going for?
2: So I, I went six years. You know, with with a lot of in and out of different drugs, switching substances, and you know, getting addicted to this and that. So I was a poly substance user. I'd use use anything that you had. So Adderall, meth cocaine, alcohol, opiates. So I went through it all, you know, switching from one to the other. Hey, if I just switch from opiates to Adderall, that's, you know, if I just get onto an upper, maybe it'll work. And then,
0: you know. Or if I go from this to alcohol and now yeah. I'm just drinking in the evenings. Yeah. And, and, and that's what they'll do is, you know, I think most addicts at one time were poly, what's the Poly word? substance users. Poly mm-hmm. substance users. But then they usually end up with the one that, you know, is the usually one, yeah. more accessible. Um, and that, that yeah. for me, that's what it was, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like alcohol, I can get it anywhere yeah. and it's socially acceptable and it's, uh, they it just seem to be the one.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, so that all led me to medically assisted treatments, which for me was suboxone and methadone over maybe a, so the end for me was like maybe a two and a half year period of suboxone and methadone if you, if you know, um, you know what those are? They're opiate blockers. you blocker. get that
1: prescribed or were you uh, – Both. Yeah.
2: Uh, so for those who don't both, know – But and- they also – I just abused them. So I just I just ended up with those things the same place because those will get you really, really high if you want them to. And so I just ended up in the same place with those that I did with everything else. And for those
0: who don't know, and, and we've had people on here that have used them, and, and I'm not saying they're good and I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying they're, they're- – I mean if,
2: if –
1: I think if you're ready to, to quit – And you have a medically supervised process, they can be lifesavers. Yes. But the problem is, uh, people are often not really committed to that. They're not ready to quit, and so they they might abuse it.
0: Yeah.
2: So you said, how long Mm -hmm. did you use those for? Like two and a half years, maybe. And that really led to a bottom where it was like, um, you know, I. I At this point,
0: are you married? Do you got kids? Are you single?
2: I, I mean, I had a girlfriend. But I, I never really put much together in life from from up until 25.
0: So are you living at home during all this time? Are you, are you living with friends? How are you affording these besides owing every drug dealer you can?
2: It's like I rented a couple places with friends and I could piece to – but really it's like I had – You know, again, some of my core issues, I just developed from whatever, from my parenting or from, from my experience in life. And, you know, I wasn't made to work or do any, any of those things. I just developed a really strong sense of entitlement. So I would just kind of latch on to people, which is hard to say, but it's true. It's like I I would have a girlfriend and I just like live at her house. Mm -hmm. You know, she paid all the bills. I would just live there and get high and- come up with all of these plans to quit and do better and get jobs. And so I lost jobs in and out of jobs, living here and there, sometimes at mom's. I moved a couple times to that because, you know, I thought that would fix it. So I'd move, I'd go sell in, in the Midwest or whatever. And I ended up at the end, I ended up in Logan with a girlfriend, you know, doing the same thing, barely keeping a job, super, super alone, miserable, depressed, su- suicidal, so on
0: the podcast, uh, people often share their rock bottom. You don't have to. But I think it kind of uh, illustrates where you are in your life and where you are now. Yeah. So what does your rock bottom look like in Logan?
2: Yeah. I mean, emotionally, yeah. And I and I remember um, in, in Logan just having multiple periods where – and this was different for me because when you're medicated like that um, – it, it it fixes the emotions. And so in a lot, it's like, man, my life is a mess, but when I get high, it feels a little bit better. And I feel like, okay, I can solve this. And then you get, you go into withdrawal or whatever. And then it's a, it's a complete, it's a complete mess. Well, we often say the drug stopped working. And so that's, you get high, but it doesn't relieve the symptoms. And that was the bottom for me is like, I'm getting high and um, feeling the depression and the suicidal ideation. And I'm Again, this was different for me at that time, but I'm just like crying all the time, stuck. Don't know what to do. I have no idea of any resources. You know, like I just and I'm, you it, burned
0: your resources through your family and anybody who no,
2: no. I just that's part of my. I just stubborn. Um, I didn't think I could ask for help. I just didn't feel like you know. Again, in hindsight, it's like I just didn't feel like I was good enough that anybody would help me. I didn't want to be a burden on anybody. Instead of so just like burying this cross, trying to hide it from this girlfriend that I had, trying to hide it from my from my family, and like again doing my best, like doing my best to stay alive, um, to fix my problems, to stop using, and um, and then you know, sounds like you had something in common with Casey. Casey mentioned
1: that all those you know years when you were on TV and radio and doing all that kind of stuff, you had low self esteem, and you just mentioned. Yeah. I didn't feel good enough. Uh, talk a little bit about like how. Why do you think that kind of substance substance abuse and addiction takes a toll on people's self esteem?
2: Well, I mean, I think it ex- for me anyway. It exists without the substances too. I just you know when I started developing in that in that phase of life with no kind of emotional guidance or. Um, you know, no, no way to express my feelings or nowhere to, I did, a, I probably did have places to go to, but it's like, they're not teaching that in elementary in 1996. They're not teaching like, Hey, here's what anxiety feels like. And if you feel like you're not good enough, it's probably just a thought in your head. None of that. And yeah. so, so I think it existed beforehand. Again, I think the addiction is, a, you know, addiction to me is a lot of people think addiction is about a lack of control. And to me, addiction is the ultimate control. It's like I have this problem of low self esteem and feeling different, and drugs and alcohol are the ultimate control for that. And it's just like any avoidance. It's like there's a lot of people out there that are overeaters, or they can't, you know, they they commit to quitting things all the time. It's just not going to kill them if they don't quit. Usually, you know.
0: You talk about low (laughs) self esteem, and, and I suffered from it as well. But you couple low self esteem with shame. Because you haven't really touched on the shame Mm -hmm. Uh, because you're out there bearing this cross and you're trying to do well. But one of the reasons why we don't ask for help, shame, shame. Yeah. I have to come now admit to you that I've done all these bad things and that I'm, I can't beat this and this is winning and shame will, shame will kick your butt.
2: Yeah.
0: And you couple that with low self-esteem. I'd be crying all the time too. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. Where did you find help? How did you get to where you are now? What, uh, what happened after your rock bottom? You had to do a call? What, what, what went down?
2: So the rock bottom, so I moved back home to my mom's. That girlfriend came with me and, you know, and this is a funny story now. I like to laugh <laughs> at all this now. It's very sad when I say it. But that girlfriend lived with me at my mom's and broke up with me while we were there looking for a place to live, which there's no other way to do that if you think about that. So she, we were both living there. She broke together. up together. <laughs> so I'm working, and so what happened for me is my brother brought. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> that seems like like a nightmare. Hey, I'm going to live with you and your mom, but I don't want to be with you anymore. Yes. Um, and do you mind if I still stay here? Yeah. Well, I mean, she eventually she she pretty quickly after that found a place to live, but. <laughs> It's not fun. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. So then it's like, you know, it's like, hey, I got this one thing going for me. I got this relationship. And then, and we're looking for a place to live. And then suddenly I'm just at mom's like, oh man. And I'm 25. So, you know. So what happened for me is my brother, Brian, who you guys have had on. He got, he got into recovery and sober in 2008. Went to treatment. And from 2008 until 2009, I would have just conversations with him a lot. About get, I saw the change in him. You know, he went from the same place I was, dark. You know, it's just that spirit of darkness. You you, and, you can
0: see it on a person.
2: Yeah. You, I mean, you can – it's visible. You can see. Yeah. I mean,
0: I go back and darn Facebook, it will pop up with these memories and I can look in my eyes and I can yeah. see the pain. Oh, yeah. I can see just the darkness. Mm-hmm
2: so yeah, I wa- and then I watched the light come on in his eyes and he started bringing around these new people cuz we all you know him and I weren't close when I was in high school but we got really close and used a lot together and and so we got we got super close and um we're still super close but he started bringing around these new people that were sober and had gone to treatment and were in recovery and were going to meetings and it was just like a whole I had never seen it before. Like guys, you know, who were glowing and their eyes were lit up, and they were connected, and they were laughing, and they were. And I was just, you know, I just wanted it. And And they probably didn't look at you with judgment either. And that probably hadn't happened to you in a while. They were waiting. They were just waiting for me to be ready. He never pushed me. He would talk to me, and I, I would come up with these plans to get sober. You know, like I mean, just crazy, crazy plans. Again, same one, switching substances and then tapering off, or whatever and he would just listen to me and you know at that time we were we'd smoke cigarettes in the driveway all the time and um he'd just listen to me and and then eventually in 2009 in July I got I got ready and so and they kind of had a they had a l- little intervention but it's like I I was ready and and who I was just the, waiting who had the intervention your brother and his friends my brother my mom w- one of his friends from recovery who one of our friends who who I who I got to know really well in that year and is, is, you know, I consider him a brother now. He's one of my recovery brothers and my little brother. And so kind of that group of people. And I don't know if they thought they were in for a fight, but I was. Something similar
0: happened to me. My brothers kicked in the door. My mom and dad all came in and Mm -hmm. they were ready to read the, read the letters. And I was like, I'm ready to go. Yeah. They're like, what? And I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's go. I'm I'm done. Yeah. I appreciate it, but let's go because I'm, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm
2: a bit of a nerd, and so I was reading a lot there. That was my other, one of my other compulsions, and so I was reading a lot and watching documentaries. So I was watching a documentary. I'm like, yes, I'm in 100%. I just need to finish. This documentary, they're like, no, 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 no. This it's is like how we're stup- going now, this is now, how, now. This
0: is how stupid I was. I was watching Intervention, <laughs> the, the TV show. Oh man, to painful. figure out their playbook, <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> to figure out like, how to get out of it. Yeah. that show was so painful for me to watch when I was using. Oh my gosh, you know, <clears> when I was using, and I would watch Interventionist. I'd watch the beginning, and I'd watch the end, and I would fast forward the middle where their lives fell apart because it was too raw for me. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 it just it, it got me every time. So I always wanted to see how they got into it, and I always wanted to see how they got mm-hmm. out of it. And the favorite part for me was watching the closing credits where they would pop up and say, "As of today, this person is 484 days sober." Or mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, right after this, they went back into the streets. Yeah, and it was the the, the numbers weren't good. Yeah, no, no, not
2: good. So your brother has an intervention. Uh, you're ready to go. Yeah, and where do you go? So I went to treatment. Renaissance Ranch. I've worked, I worked. I ended up working there for a long time, and um, and um, yeah, I, I just I just started soaking it in. I, I was just ready, ready, ready. The the thing that you know, no, I wasn't prepared for is so I went to treatment, which treatment is like a defense mechanism for all your issues, or it can be. So I went there and was super comfortable, and and met some really good people, and was protected from my from my core issues by that center and by being comfortable. And so I got out of treatment and that's when to me, I was 25 years old and that's when real life, real life hit me in the face that I'd been running from since I was 14. And I started this social anxiety came back. The nervousness came back. So I say all the, I, I tell people all the time when, when I talk to them, it's like that first maybe nine to 11 months in recovery was the hardest nine to 11 months of my life. Emotionally, I, I had nothing to, you mean after you know, after you graduated. I mean, all of it. Really? Yeah. That's just my story. It was super, super hard. And my mental illness was strong. And um, it. Re- I, I really struggled to talk to people. And, I, you know, again, my brother drove me around to look for jobs one day. He's like, let's go get a job. I couldn't get out of the car. Like, I just couldn't. I was too nervous to go and felt so poor about myself. I couldn't go in to, like, a coffee shop and ask for an application. He brings up a good point where we've talked about it before on the podcast where a lot of people who
0: get out of recovery, uh, I, I liken it to those of us who remember the Rocky movies. Right after you get done with the Rocky movies, you think you can box because you feel <laughs> yeah. so good. Yeah. Yeah. And right when you get out of a recovery center, for most, they feel like they're ready to ch- change the world and they've got all mm-hmm. this power positivity. They call it the pink cloud. You're living it and everything's beautiful. And then you sit at best. You got hit with real life again, yeah. For the first time in 25 years,
2: everything mm-hmm. you've
1: been avoiding, yeah. with your substance abuse, is
2: right back there, yeah. And everybody's story is different. So some people don't have that, and some people don't use till they're 30, and they have a whole. We different had a guy life. on two weeks ago who started meth at 62. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, everyone's story is different. So his story, be, so but for me, it's like my story was like I started avoiding my emotions. And like who I was and my soul and my core. And I started avoiding that when I was 12, 13, 14, and I never dealt with it. And so when I was 25 and I got sober, I was a 12-year-old. Emotionally, socially, across the board, I was a 12-year-old. My Arrested work experience, yes. I mean, I was a – and so, and that's what it felt like. And so, again, I don't want to scare anybody out there, but that – my experience was early recovery was significantly difficult for a few months. But I started, you know, I, I got sober in in twelve steps, and so, um, I eventually got a sponsor right at eleven months. And this is what I would say to anybody who's getting sober: it's like do, do it the hard way. Like do it. Um, there's no there's no easy way if you're if you have a story like mine and you're entitled and you and you're always looking for the shortcut and the easy way to deal with your pain or your emotions. There is no easy way. The so quick I got, fixes. Yeah. And so I got a hard sponsor, a man I'm still in contact with, who I love with all my heart, who made me do really, really hard things. I mean, he asked me in my first week, he asked me um, at our home group that we had, he's like, you need to go and get the phone number of five old timers and call them for a week. And I almost quit. Like I, I'm like – you know, I don't think you understand. I can't do that. Like That's not in my makeup. That's just what I believed about myself. But I did it. I didn't take the shortcut, and I did it. You got, So <laughs> for those who don't know, the 12-step and getting a sponsor is,
0: is – uh, what he did at the beginning was extremely difficult because what a lot of addicts will do when they get in that 12-step room is what he was talking about, is take the quick fix. I'm going to find the person most like me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that, you know, that that's not going to test me. That's not going to push me. That's going to buy into my BS. He didn't do that. He, so he walked over to the two, 300 pound barbell and said, I'm going to lift this. Yeah. And then, well, that's not possible. Well, let's see what you got kid.
2: Yeah. yeah. And we, and we all develop, you know, a whole set of manipulations and behaviors in addiction that some we might have insight into and some we don't. And I had poor insight into my manipulations. And one of them was like that entitlement or that, you know, taking the easy way. I never want to think that about myself. I didn't know that at the time. You were an athlete. Yeah. And so, and so he helped, he started to help teach me that I wasn't, you know, because I was like, I had the low self-esteem, but part of my life was like, I was either there like down in the dirt or really arrogant. I was one of the two, but there's never like a humble middle. Like it was all ego one way or the other. And so he helped me find the middle. Like he helped me find how to be a normal human and work hard and not lie and and not, you know, not take a shortcut, you know, to be accountable, to show up. He told me the the first one of the first times we met, he said, "If you're ever late in the first few months, then we're done." Like it's over. We're not I'm not going to work with you. I just have other people who want to do it. It's like I needed that because I'm always going to find a way to get out of it or to show up late or talk myself out of it in some way. And that's just who I was. You know, it's, we, we hear it a lot. It's like, I kind of, I showed up without character and that's kind of who I was. I was never taught life skills, mostly because I was just resistant to it, but I would never learn life skills or how to deal with my emotions or how to be accountable or how to show up in my life. And that's what I, part of what I needed was to have someone show me how to do that. So the first uh, nine to eleven months were the toughest. Yeah, and then what does life look like? So it, it's and then it gets it starts getting gradually, gradually better, and um, um, I and then I start to get friends, and and I start to you know I ran a lot early on, and and I never believed I could work out for some reason. I just like oh that's not me. Like I'm not a guy who can work out, and so I think when I started doing hard things. I started to learn that the stories I was telling myself about myself were wrong. And so I started to challenge different areas of my life. So I started running. I started like making friends and keeping uh, friendly relationships, which was different for me. I stopped dating for, you know, I didn't date for th- three years. Some of that was on purpose, um, <laughs> and i just started to learn about myself and and prove myself wrong and build my confidence and my self-esteem and start to learn that i could have a conversation with people keep a job uh, keep money in the bank yeah. you know it was a big deal for someone like me when i was 27 or 26 a couple of years sober when i got a paycheck and had money in the bank that was like a life-changing experience for me like like truly truly a revolutionary experience for me to have money in the bank and get a paycheck. Like, Oh my gosh, I did it. Like I'm saving money, you know? So, and that's kind of what recovery started to look like for me is just proving myself wrong. And then I started to get those friends that I saw my brother have and he was one of them and he's been there with me the whole, the whole way. And so I started to laugh and I started to go to concerts and living the life that I never got to live because I was hiding for, for so many years. And then you fall in love. Yeah, so I met I met my wife, um, oh, geez, three or four years sober. Uh, we've been together nine years total, so I, I've been sober 14 years, and so I guess, I don't know the math on that, but I was like three, three, four years sober. Five. When, yeah, five?
1: <laughs> well, 14 minus nine.
2: Something like that. It's wild, because it feels like we just started, but... And you got some kids. And, I, and you know, I was like I, – I, I work with people all the time and tell them, you know, you want to become the type of of person that can attract the type of person you want. And and it's just a fact that when I got sober, I couldn't have attracted – who is now my wife, who is a therapist and has a graduate degree. And I met her when she had just – or I started dating her when she had just started graduate school. It's like, man, that was not – And she didn't have any history of
1: addiction or anything?
2: She doesn't have a history of addiction, no.
1: So how did
2: you how did you feel about telling her about that you were in recovery was that She knew. She was like recovery adjacent, played softball with us and and so mm-hmm. she knew me. Okay. And we met. I was running Ragnar races with her, relay races and um I was still smoking cigarettes then and so I'd run a leg and smoke a cigarette. She just like found that charming. <laughs> I don't know what she was thinking. <laughs> yeah. And so but- <laughs> what does life look like for you now? So now it's like a, so. Eventually, you know, I was sober for for three and a half years and decided to go to school. I started school zero credits. Started when I was twenty eight, almost twenty nine, and um, went to school. Went all the way through graduate school and got my degree to to become a therapist. And I've worked in treatment that whole time. I got my substance abuse uh, counseling uh, certificate along the way. So it looks it looks really similar. It's like I surround myself with people who are either in recovery or who I just like genuine people who I can be vulnerable, bit vulnerable with and open with like this, like Mm -hmm. you can just say the hardest things and they know what to do with it. and, And they're not scared of that kind of conversation. And I surround myself with those types of people and I laugh and I hang out with my friends and, um, you know, we have, we have three kids and building a career and a life. And I mean, it's amazing. It really, it really truly is. um, When I got sober, it's, I I would have, I would have taken, if you had offered me the deal to make $12 an hour and just have a place to live for the rest of my life, I promise you I would have taken it. Without Mm -hmm. hyperbole, it's like I would have taken that deal. That's what I thought I could get. Like that was my skill level. And so now to be where I'm at is beyond anything I ever imagined for for myself.
0: I love that so much. Uh,
2: You and your wife are getting ready to start a practice to help other addicts in recovery. Well, yeah, to help everyone with mental health, yeah. So we we have it; it's been going a little while. We're in Farmington, and um, go ahead and Do I, it. plug it. It's uh, Seven Counseling and Wellness in Farmington. If you're looking for us, you can Google that; you'll find us. Um, and I, I still work part time in treatment, so I, I work with the addicts there. Our private practice; we work with with anyone. With you know, I think our wheelhouse is like anxiety and trauma and and addiction and other compulsive behaviors. But I'm big in the mental health space you know again i didn't have those resources when i was a teenager i just i didn't have a language i didn't have the words to put to what i was feeling it's like it's like if somebody had come to me when i was 12 and asked me to start speaking french it's like i didn't have the vocabulary or the words that i needed to function as a teenager and an early adult and that's what is important to me is helping people find that whether they're 12 or 18 or 50 or 60, it doesn't matter to me. I just love, I love that space. Dr. Matt, what do you think about Jameson's story?
0: Uh, well, I have a question before. Okay. Ooh. So my These question, I, I was
1: hoping you could talk a little bit about how you've treated and managed your anxiety since getting sober, because one of the things that I run into as a therapist as well is that when people aren't able to get the mental health treatment, they often relapse in yeah. their addiction. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So my, my treatment for anxiety is, I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a few different things. So the first thing is I'm a big believer in, in like acceptance and self-love. So I'm a big believer that trying to constantly change the symptom is just a path for me back to addiction. So that means it's like, so I do mindfulness meditation. That's, that's part of it. But I don't do mindful meditation to get rid of my anxiety because I know from my experience that it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes I can do all the meditations or all the reading or whatever in the world, and the anxiety is still going to be there. So, part of it's like I have to learn how to function as an adult while anxious, like coming into a podcast on a Thursday morning. You know, like you have to learn to walk through hard things and feel nervous and feel anxious, even if it's panicky or even if it's like really bad. So, that's part of it. And then I write, you know, I don't always do all these things perfectly. So, I write, I like to read, I like self-help books, I like to read recovery books, I like to listen to recovery podcasts, I like to be around recovery people. That recipe for me usually equals a lessening of my anxiety symptoms so that I can function in my in my life.
0: And yeah. see, for me and my anxiety cuz I just told you at the <laughs> beginning of the podcast I've been suffering from anxiety attacks lately. Uh, the, the four square breathing really helps me Mm -hmm. calm my head and get out of my body and and, and slow the heart rate down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then what you said, surrounding myself with quality people and this podcast and the recovery, it makes me feel, uh, connected and that's what I need. And often when those things happen where I get the anxiety and I don't, it's because I don't feel I have a connection. Mm -hmm. And so that really helps me.
2: And that's part of what drugs do, right? Is drugs provide connection. Drugs oh, and alcohol provide connection, whether it's with other people or just with yourself. It's yeah. just like it bridges that gap. And so it's just huge, huge to me in my recovery to have that connection and to smile and laugh and do fun things. And-
0: well, Dr. Matt, what do you think about his answer? Uh, a plus.
2: <laughs> yeah. No,
1: I mean it was, it's a great answer and I really like the fact that you're essentially talking about accepting discomfort. And that's one of the yeah. things we talk a lot about, uh, anxiety treatment is one of my specialties. And a lot of times people feel like I can't be happy until I have no anxiety Mm -hmm. and we have to help them reframe that. It's like, well, actually anxiety in and of itself can be motivating and helpful Mm -hmm. to people. Uh, nobody has no anxiety. Well, there's a couple of them. They're probably playing Mario and In eating Cheetos in the basement somewhere right now. Yeah, Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anxiety, uh, accepting being uncomfortable, I think is a core uh, tenet of recovery. Like we are going to be uncomfortable. We don't need to go to something right away to feel no discomfort. Discomfort can be tolerable. So there's acceptance therapy and things like that involved with with that. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I appreciate you sharing your story. I hope what people are hearing is uh i I work a lot with adolescents, and so that idea of arrested development is so very, very real. There's so much learning we we often over focus on brain development during teenage years, like oh, our brains are still developing till mid twenties and so we don't want to use substances and that's all very true and very important. But the reality is that's also when. You're learning your social skills and your academic skills and your interpersonal confidence and all these kinds of things. And so when you struggle with anxiety, which causes withdrawal, and when you struggle with substance abuse, by the time you get sober, you might find yourself feeling like a 12-year-old as an adult. And so I I think your story is a great example of how you can pick up and – pick up on that development and get to a place. Now you're somebody with a graduate degree and you're helping other people and you're living your best life. And I just really appreciate you sharing that with somebody who might be out there listening for themselves or for a loved one, feeling like, you know, they can't do it. You
0: can. Yeah. The thing I love about Jameson's story is in the beginning, you said you felt like you were the only one that was feeling like this. And I think many addicts think the same. Yeah. But I think the reality is there's more people like you yeah. out there than they ever will realize. Yeah. yeah.
1: I love that we have that dialogue now in schools. Uh, it's, it's more part of the culture that we can talk about. Absolutely. If you were the anxious kid in your sixth grade class, there were about 30% of you had yeah. it as well. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's actually like a really important part of my story was um, in my first two years, I'm trying to get assistance for school in my first two years sober. And I went to a, they had me go and see a psychiatrist to do a personality test. And at the end of that personality test, I went in and he said, you have social anxiety. And so in, and in the mental health world, we don't always like to label people, but for me, that label at that time made everything make sense in my whole world. It made everything make sense all at one time. Not only that, but then I said it out loud to some people, which which was scary. And they're like, oh, yeah, me too. And I was like, really? Like I was blown away that other people not only knew what I was feeling, but they had – like there's people out there who have the exact same experience and feelings. And that was just huge, huge for me to know.
0: I love the fact that you're so
2: relatable. Can I make a comment though? Yes.
1: I like the fact that you use the word label because what I teach my graduate students is – if you give somebody a, a term for what they have and then you don't provide any follow-up and help, mm-hmm. then it's a label. Mm-hmm. And it really isn't that helpful. Yeah. But if you say, here's what you have and here's what we can do about it, I like to call that a diagnosis. A diagnosis leads to helpful treatment. Mm-hmm. And in your case, it kind of opened up your eyes to this whole world of like, oh, my gosh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. you know. And so I think, I think if, if we as mental health professionals – Will take people through that process of assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think some people have had the experience of just being diagnosed and then there's no treatment provided. Mm-hmm. And that can be a label that can feel like another rock in your backpack. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad your experience was kind of that opening up to this whole world of man, I'm not alone.
2: Yeah not not only am I not alone or people don't understand it's like oh my gosh all my symptoms are right there in that book listed it's like yeah oh geez, check, it's just check, relieving. Check, but check. it's like it is it can be dangerous cuz people do get caught in treatment cycles or it can validate some already kind of uh, maladaptive behaviors to label someone they can use it as you know so it you got to be careful with that but <clears throat>
0: Well, I love the fact that you're so relatable and so willing to share your story, and I think it's going to help many, and I wish you nothing but success. I'm glad you came to the podcast and shared your story, and uh, we look forward to talking to you in the future. So thank you very nice. much, Jameson. Thank you, guys. And thank you for listening to the 300th episode of Project Recovery. That's pretty amazing. I know. We need to have some special bumper music or something. Ooh, Josh will put it in there I for us. We heard somebody in the beginning. Maybe he'll (laughs) throw that in. But thank you very much. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. 300 mother (laughs) episodes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can you beep it? Yeah, just beep it. That's funny.